0: This week on the Back Table podcast
1: there's, I think, a lot of excitement about what thulium fiber laser may be able to offer, particularly for dusting. And, you know, I think the the idea is that, you know, the ability uh, to really alter your power delivery, both the amount and sort of the, the way it's delivered may help us to actually truly generate dust from a stone. So, you know, there's a lot of work being done now, because obviously there's going to be some upper limit to this energy generation and, you know, the concerns of maybe a downside to that energy generation in the collecting system in terms of potential damage to the urethelium with heat generation and things like that. So I think there's a lot more to come, and I, I think it's an ex- exciting time for, for laser technology for stones.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Jody Antonelli from UT Southwestern Department of Urology. Jody's an associate professor here. She's an excellent clinician, tremendous surgeon, patients love her, and uh, really, really happy to have you. Jody, how's the day going?
1: Hey, Aditya. Um, Doing great. Uh, Thank thank you so much for the invitation. I I really appreciate it. I'm I'm honored to be able to participate, uh, so thank you.
0: Perfect, perfect. All right, Jody. So, um, you know, a lot to unpack today. And I thought that we would maybe just start out in the ER where so much uh, happens at our end as it, as it pertains to stones. So patients coming in concerned for renal colic, um, you're getting a call from the ED. What's, just, what's the kind of basic bare bones information that you want to hear here?
1: Um, You know, I'd like to know about the patient's um, vital signs. Do they have a temperature, you know, tachycardia, hypotension? Um, Did they do any preliminary blood work uh, specifically, you know, with with an interest in knowing their creatinine, uh, their serum white blood cell count, and then a urinalysis? And then obviously, you know, have they obtained imaging at that point? I'd go and see the patient myself, but getting a little bit more history as well from the provider who has seen them kind of presenting symptoms. Uh, duration of the pain um you know, if they have a history of stones previously and you know do they do they kind of appear toxic non-toxic Does the is their pain controlled now are they tolerating po
0: okay yeah clearly comprehensive uh, history physical review of information and what are going to be your your kind of dead ringers this is a sick patient time to do something urgent decompression
1: you know, the, the sort of immediate triggers to want to intervene and, and you know, do something uh, to drain the kidney would be if the patient's febrile, you know, if they're um, at all hemodynamically unstable. I mean, sometimes pain can give you tachycardia, but, you know, tachycardia coupled with hypotension certainly is is worrisome. And then from the standpoint of kind of, you know, the objective lab work that you get, putting that in the context of the patient's presentation, an elevated white blood cell count in Isolation sometimes could be just due to inflammation, but you know that coupled with a patient who may have some of those other signs again, you know, certainly heightens my concern. And then um, the urinalysis. So um, yeah, the urinalysis is tricky. A lot. Some of the parameters could be elevated in the setting of inflammation. Uh, additionally, sometimes surprisingly, the urinalysis you know is not that impressive if a stone is truly obstructing. Um, you know, it sometimes doesn't doesn't look as bad as you would expect. But if you have a a urinalysis with positive nitrite, that really kind of heightens my concern. Very severe gross hematuria, peridium, things that change the color of the urine can sometimes... Falsely, you know, elevated nitrite that isn't actually a sign of infection, but uh, you know, a positive nitrite is worrisome. And then, leukocyte esterase, I think, more often can be elevated with just pure inflammation. And then, elevated white cells or uh, presence of bacteria on a UA can also be be worrisome.
0: Okay, so um, you know, clearly these are going to have to be patient specific uh, indications, but couple of scenarios that you touched on so isolated leukocytosis blood pressure heart rate temperature all of that's kind of checking out looking fine you know let's call it like a white blood cell count of 15 ua looks pretty good patients reliable can you just give us kind of like a a broad strokes of how you might manage that patient and say that the pain's been fairly well controlled with you know medications in the er
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in in that situation, you know, if the patient, like you said, is reliable, you know, they they seem kind of hemodynamically um, stone cold stable. UA doesn't look particularly concerning. I mean, those those people, I'd I'd more suspect that that white count is due to inflammation. Um, You know, those are people that obviously I'd want to have pretty close follow up back in the office with. But you know, people that I would probably, you know, at that point feel comfortable sending home to, you know, to follow back up as an outpatient. I certainly would make sure that the ER not only sent a urinalysis, but sent a urine culture. Sometimes they won't do that if the urinalysis looks pretty um, pretty benign. Um, and then, you know, plus minus on sending the person home on empiric antibiotics, you know, I, I think it's never you're never going to be faulted for that. But uh, in those situations, I think that's that elevation is typically more due to inflammation.
0: Perfect. And what about, um, you know, a U-way? You know, clearly we see ureteral stones with cystitis, you know, maybe less of a concern for obstructive pyelonephritis.
1: The the difficult patients to to determine what to do aren't the people who come into the ER, you know, febrile, tachycardic, hypotensive, and those are kind of a no brainer. Um, it's it's these patients who do come in, you know, pretty you know rock stable in terms of hemodynamics. They're not febrile, but the but the urinalysis, you know, looks worrisome, even frankly worrisome for an infection. I mean, if if the patient has an obstructing stone, I, I think you know, kind of looking at some other parts of that person's presentation and their history are important. I mean, if they're presenting um, and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a significant amount of back pain that they're having, it's more kind of cystitis symptoms. You know, if they don't have other um, comorbidities that would potentially cause a immunosuppression, things like diabetes or, you know, on immunosuppressing medications. I mean, those are patients that, you know, perhaps I'd be more inclined to, you know, say it's more likely a cystitis as opposed to, a, a you know, obstructive pyelonephritis. You I think this even comes up more often for me sometimes I'll have a patient that I'm, I'm working up for like an elective ureteroscopy and their urinalysis comes back positive and it was a urinalysis that was just obtained you know purely for a pre-op um, you know uh, evaluation I mean those people for sure uh, you know I'm not going to run off and stent I would I would just put them on a course of antibiotics and sort of be treating their their um, cystitis I and mean, the patient presenting to the ER you know probably has has had at least some degree of flank pain if they're presenting and unlikely just cystitis symptoms and and you know if if that urinalysis is concerning and there's a select few patients that, you know, I think I would just treat with antibiotics, but the great majority, you know, I would be inclined to stent. The, the issue is just, you know, the stakes are so high. If you send a patient home who could have any component of obstructive pilo, it's hard to justify that. So I, I'd say, you know, erring on the side of of caution and, and draining those patients is certainly, you know, probably the, 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 the way to go.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think we can all appreciate how quickly things can turn for a patient with obstructive pilo. So the folks that are are coming in, you know, pretty sick, some tachycardia, hypertension, you know, elevated lactate, and so forth. You know, again, I know it's hard to to bin people in one versus the other, but general preferences: nephrostomy tube versus stent.
1: Yeah, um, you know, Dr. Pearl actually did did a nice study in like the late 1990s and was essentially like a randomized trial where she, um, you know, assigned folks to either a stent or nephrostomy tube. And uh, she, they actually found, you know, that there wasn't any significant difference in terms of, you know, outcomes, normalization to um, being uh, having a normal temperature, normalization of white count between those two groups. So I think, you know, there is this thought that if a patient comes in more uh, on the, on the curve of sepsis that that a nephrostomy tube is is really what's warranted her her data would suggest otherwise my you know kind of points that I use in deciding whether to to go with a nephrostomy tube or a stent have a lot to do with the stone and the anatomy um, you know if it's a extremely large ureteral stone i mean i'd say like over a centimeter centimeter and a half and i'm concerned that i'm not going to be able to get uh, you know a wire and a stent past it certainly those patients i'd uh, prefer have a nephrostomy tube you know anybody with any kind of difficult anatomy in the pelvis Bladder, a very large prostate is something to consider in an older gentleman. Just may be difficult to find the the um, ureteral orifice. So, um, you know, those patients f- for sure, I think do do much better with the nephrostomy tube. So, you know, there you d- the differences in sort of what you have to um, have a patient undergo to to, to get either tube. So, um, you know, general anesthesia versus some sort of sedation. I mean, if if a patient is really hemodynamically unstable, um, you know, it's theoretically you can have an afrostomy tube without um, a general. Uh, again, it's really a, a conversation that has to happen with um, IR and, and whoever anesthesia is at your facility as to how comfortable they are with, with doing that. That's also, I think, just the patient's stability and a discussion with those groups is, is definitely something to undertake when you're deciding between which tube is better.
0: Yeah, I remember one time being on call, and there's a lady that came in with a pretty dramatic presentation, and we just did it, you know, without general anesthesia. It just kind of had to be done, and uh, it worked out. Uh, once upon a time, um, we used to do some stenting in clinic, and, um, you know, it was kind of full spectrum in, in terms of patient tolerability, but I suppose it's, it's an option. Well, thanks for that, Jody. You know, so fortunately, you know, I would say that the majority of the patients aren't coming in you know, acutely septic ill, they've got flank pain, they've gotten some medications in the, uh, in the emergency department. Can you kind of talk to us about your uh, medication regimen timeframe for, for patients that you're going to counsel for a trial of passage?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, I think it's important to get a, an idea from the patient, you know, how long have they been having symptoms when they are presenting to the ER? Cause that's sort of, you know, where your clock starts in terms of how long you want to attempt a trial of passage. So, I mean, the limited data that's out there, obviously there's not a real ethical way to test this in humans is basically animal data. You know, we try not to leave a stone in a location that could potentially be obstructing or partially obstructing for more than like six weeks. So, um, so typically you know i'll make sure a patient has um pain medication you know, there's a lot of um Emerging data now that NSAIDs actually may be better in terms of pain control than narcotics. So, you know, if a patient has um, normal renal function, um, no contraindications to NSAIDs, I actually prefer like a ketorolac or diclofenac over narcotics. Um, sometimes I'll give the patient kind of a, a breakthrough narcotic prescription as well, like ty- Tylenol 3 or tramadol, or occasionally hydrocodone. But you know, recommend that the patient kind of uses the NSAIDs as their first line, and then you know, there's a a lot of data uh, um, uh, mixed data and I think a lot of differing opinions around the globe about medical expulsive therapy. So the use of alpha blockers for, um, you know, promoting stone passage, the US versus Europe and specifically the UK, I think a very different, you know, thoughts on on what should be done. Um, so uh, there was a, a large trial, um, probably 2015 that was conducted in the UK. And, you know, they had a very different outcome measure than many of the other studies that were done. It was basically, uh, you know, not a radiographic, Outcome in terms of stone passage, but you know, lack of need of intervention. But based on that trial, I think the UK and, and most of Europe um, are less inclined to prescribe alpha blockers for medical expulsive therapy. I think in the US, you know, it, it's still recommended in our um, AUA guidelines specifically for larger distal stones. The data is is greatest there. Um, so you know, I think um, prescribing a patient an alpha blocker is something that even if it's a proximal stone i tend to do you know my thought is that Potentially some of these studies, you know, may not actually be powered um, to really show a, a difference that that maybe matters clinically. I mean, if taking a pretty well tolerated medication even has like a 1% chance of preventing me from needing a surgery and a stent, I think it's worth it. Um, so you know, um, certainly for larger distal stones like over five millimeters distally, I would definitely recommend a, an alpha blocker, but I'm usually inclined to prescribe it for for any any ureteral stone. And then you know plus minus on antiemetics depending on how the patient is is feeling.
0: Steroids at all? Is that a part of your passage regimen?
1: Yeah, I don't typically for you know for uh, the time during a, a trial of passage.
0: Okay, okay. So um, you know I think uh, historically it was kind of this one minus stone size formula where you get about a ninety percent chance with a one millimeter stone, eighty percent with a two millimeter. You know, of course there's going to be patient anatomy specific, but are there patients when they start approaching a certain threshold that you're like, yeah, this is Going to be something that requires surgery and go ahead and start that process.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that you know, the AUA guidelines say a trial of passage is reasonable up to a centimeter. I mean, obviously, your your success, um, particularly if you haven't passed a number of stones before, you know, of passing a one centimeter stone is going to be pretty darn low, like below ten percent. Um, so, uh, you know, I usually once the um, size gets over five millimeters, you know, you do sort of get progressively, um, you know, less and less likely that you're going to pass that stone. Um, so, you know, certainly getting over six, seven millimeters I'll, um, in, in a patient who does not have a history of, of repeated stone passages previously, I'll, I'll talk with the patient about probably limited utility and waiting and, and perhaps better to just go forward with planning a, a surgery f- for removal.
0: And um, do you send these patients home with strainers or get KUBs at the time of presentation to see if they're radio-opaque?
1: Yeah, you know, unfortunately, many of the patients, you know, are seen in the ER. And then the first time that I actually, um, you know, get to interact with them will be in the clinic. But you know, I think your first contact with that patient, um, it's definitely helpful to get a KUB. I mean, it, it just helps you know um, a little bit about potential stone type, um, allows you to know whether you can follow that patient, you know, to determine if they've passed it uh, with a KUB as opposed to a CT, which obviously is a lot less radiation, less cost. And then I think a strainer is, is, always, is always good to give a patient.
0: Okay. A couple of, you know, scenarios that we sometimes come across. Solitary kidney, still making urine, ureteral stone. Where does that kind of sit in terms of anxiety provoking?
1: You know, I'd say pretty high. Um, I think if you have, again, a very reliable patient, you know, I don't think you have to, um, you know, run off and and deal with the patient immediately. Uh, However, you know, I think if if you were not going to, the patient better be somebody that is incredibly reliable. Um, I mean, if it's a very, very small stone, you know, 2 million, Millimeters or something, you know that person again is incredibly reliable. You've checked a serum creatinine and it's it's normal. You know you could potentially attempt a trial of passage in them, Um, but uh, you know I think uh, solitary kidneys or bilateral ureteral stones um, are certainly situations where you know erring on the side of caution and you know taking those patients to the to the OR fairly urgently is is certainly prudent.
0: Okay. And if they haven't caught a stone in the strainer or directly observed the passage of the stone, or you do routinely get a... CT scan or a KUB if it was in fact documented to be radiopaque before surgery?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, just going on symptoms, you will absolutely, um, you know, run the risk that that stone is still there in the ureter. And, you know, over time, a stone can actually just slowly grow. And, you know, if, if, if a, a kidney is sort of put in a situation, I think, where there's a decreased drainage over a long period of time, sometimes it's not it's not a symptomatic thing. And so I think you you want to be able to document that that stone has has in fact passed. If the patient comes to you, you know, several weeks later, just hasn't had pain at all. Um, so again, it's nice if you have the KUB, you know, you can get another KUB and, and see, you know, even if I have a KUB that shows the stone is radio opaque, I will um, typically... Mm-hmm. You know and, and i get a repeat kub and it shows that it's no longer there I'll, I'll often also get an ultrasound if the original imaging was a CT that showed hydronephrosis i like to be able to to document resolution of of that hydronephrosis with the ultrasound you know i think we all want to limit radiation exposure as much as possible so if you can avoid a CT and, and as, as repeat imaging and get the majority of your information through kuB and ultrasound um, that's certainly the the best way to go some situations either due to patient body hazard um, or, um, you know, the stone not being radiopaque, then in those situations, getting a repeat CT, I think, is, uh, is certainly what's recommended. You know, if it's a distal stone, sometimes I'll just do a CT of the pelvis to avoid as much radiation.
0: Okay. So, you know, a non-toxic patient, trial of passage, repeat imaging in about maybe three to six weeks, I guess, depending on stone size, pain, etc., can you describe what your your standard preoperative antibiotics are? Maybe just kind of walk us through, you know, like a a garden variety ureteroscopy in your hands.
1: Sure, um, you know, so if, if I have a patient that I you know see has failed a trial of passage, I like to make sure that they have at least a urinalysis or a urine culture you know, about a, a two weeks to a week before surgery. I mean, the AUA guidelines would say at least a urinalysis. And then uh, I don't, you know, put patients on antibiotics preoperatively if they have a negative culture. If they have, like I mentioned earlier, you know, patient gets a, a pre-op culture, they're asymptomatic and it comes back positive, I'll start that patient on antibiotics. And ideally, I mean, there's, you know, no, no right answer with this, but I usually typically make sure the patient is on an antibiotic at least five to seven days, culture specific, you know, both. Before uh, proceeding, if I have a patient who's had a history of recurrent UTIs, and maybe that you know very last culture prior to surgery is negative, but you know I'm I'm, I'm concerned that they could have issues uh, with bacteria that's present there. I have a low threshold to put those people on antibiotics preoperatively. You know, maybe three three to five days. Uh, In terms of kind of perioperative antibiotics at the time of surgery. Um, you know, I certainly do give um, typically a, a cephalosporin um, if they don't have any kind of uh, issue with allergy um, at the time of surgery. And then I don't prescribe antibiotics beyond that. You know, the AUA guidelines um, would say that, that um, you know, that. Perioperative dose is sufficient, and so you know again, unless the patient has a history of um, recurrent UTIs or you know issues with infections, and I, I won't prescribe uh, an antibiotic postoperatively. And then you know just in in terms of the the ureteroscopy itself, you know we actually instituted uh, a kind of a multimodal pathway um with the with the help of anesthesia here to kind of decrease the narcotic uh, requirement around the time of surgery uh, and also to to sort of have the patient uh, hopefully you know waking up from surgery and ultimately being discharged with their pain under as good a control as possible. So, you know, they're not leaving the hospital kind of having having to play catch up. And that pathway has been, um, you know, incredibly helpful. So, you know, utilizing things other than narcotics, um, you know, things like NSAIDs, um, gabapentin, IV Tylenol. Um, it's really, you know, we, we've looked at this and it's really decreased uh, morphine equivalent usage in the PACU. It's decreased patient calls in the time between surgery and stent removal. Um, So that that has really been a a successful thing for us here. You know, in terms of the the surgery itself, the ureteroscopy itself, you know, typically, um, you know, the first step putting in the cystoscope, I always, you know, talk with the residents about the importance of doing a really thorough cystoscopy. You know, you don't want to be the person who misses a bladder tumor that somebody diagnoses a couple months later. So, you know, getting a good look around the bladder, being sure that there's nothing that looks uh, suspicious there. And then, um, you know, placing a, a guide wire. I typically Um, start with a a PTFE 035 wire. Um, I know, you know, many people will start with a hybrid wire that has a hydrophilic tip, sometimes will help get around stones in the ureter. And then I I do use a a device called an 810 dilator. I think it's incredibly helpful for dilating the ureter and then gives you the ability to place a second wire.
0: A couple of quick questions, Jody. What about um, large prostates? You know, UOs are kind of tricky to see. Any kind of Tips and tricks on that one?
1: I mean, sometimes a, a 70 degree lens could help. It could be very difficult to pass a wire through there, but at least give you an idea, you know, where, where the UO could be. A flexible cystoscope um, is also sometimes uh, something that could be uh, helpful. You know, the, the real tricky thing is the more you look, sometimes you end up really stirring up bleeding and then the visibility just gets more and more difficult. But uh, the the other thing, like a methylene blue or indocyanine green, sometimes will, you know, allow you to kind of get an idea where where efflux is happening so that you can direct your wire at that spot.
0: Speaking of bleeding, patients on anticoagulation, is that, um, you know, something, you know, clearly you want to get cardiac clearance, um, but are you okay, comfortable with Plavix, Coumadin, Next Generation, antiplatelet medications?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, for ureteroscopy, yes. I mean, they've published a number of series that, you know, ureteroscopy on aspirin or other um, anticoagulation medication, you know, can be done safely. You're not cutting the patient anywhere. Um, so I think, you know, the risk to the patient coming off those medications is probably greater than any risk of significant hematuria. I do counsel patients after, you know, that they may have more hematuria than the, than the average patient, and certainly to, you know, have a low threshold to call us if they're p- passing large clots or anything like that I have not had that issue in you know a number of patients that I've operated on with essentially um, you know all anticoagulation or antiplatelet agents. Now, PCNL is a different story. So for, for PCNL, there have been a number of, of, of studies on doing PCNL on aspirin, 81 milligram aspirin. And, um, and I do do that and have had good success, you know, without any significant issues with bleeding. But aspirin-325 or pretty much any other anticoagulation agents, I don't, you know, I, I don't do PCNLs. And I'd say most people around the country feel that way.
0: And do you always shoot a retrograde when you do your or is it case by case?
1: Yeah. Case by case. I, you know, I, I know there are lots of folks who, who do, and I certainly don't, don't think it's wrong and gives you a nice roadmap of, of things, but uh, you know, I typically don't do it unless I'm, I'm having difficulty getting a wire to traverse the direction, you know, or the pathway that I anticipate the ureter to be going.
0: Okay. So you talked about getting your first wire up. What about, you know, you get that wire up and, you know, not frank pus, but it looks a little cloudy, you know, a little, little turbid. You're you're in culture preoperatively and UA were clear. Does that put you on high alert or
1: Yeah, you know, it's tough. Sometimes turbid and, you know, turbid from infection and turbid from just stagnant urine could be, um, you know, uh, difficult to discern. So if it really, you know, stuff's coming out around the UO that looks at all worrisome, I would put an open-ended five French catheter up, you know, try and get it up into the renal pelvis, pull out the wire and really aspirate some urine from up there and try to get a better look. I mean, if it is anything that looks like frank purulent urine, you know, for sure at that point, I would stop and just stent the patient. Um, You know, if if it's just... Just a a darker red or some debris again on a case by case basis, but in a patient with you know incredibly low low risk in my mind of, of infection, I would I would proceed at that point with the ureteroscopy.
0: Okay, great, uh, Jody. So you know you talked about getting your first wire up. Um, let's just say you're having a hard time getting it past the stone. Some options that typically have worked, and I've heard of slurries, a combination of lube and um, contrast you know, various wires, or can you kind of talk us through your algorithm for that clinical scenario?
1: Yeah. um, First thing I will do is uh, pass the five French open-ended ureteral catheter up, you know, to the point of the stone. And sometimes just having that Additional, you know, rigidity or that backing at that point could help. Um, I'll take out the standard, um, you know, double floppy tip PTFE wire that I use, um, and I'll uh, try instead a hydrophilic wire, like a, uh, you know, a, a, it's usually a, just a pure hydrophilic wire, occasionally. A hybrid wire. I think injecting at least contrast, and I actually do sometimes do this slurry with you know a little bit of, of lubrication and um and saline. You know sometimes if you can just get a a little bit of contrast or, or some of that slurry to get past the the stone. Um, number one, you'll you'll sort of see the path where the ureter goes more approximately, and sometimes that can be helpful. And I think sometimes it also does just help that hydrophilic wire to to get by. So you know that's kind of my 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 two tools, the five French open end cap in the hydrophilic wire just you know gently trying repeatedly to see if there's some some angle or some corner I can catch where that angled glide wire will get past the stone
0: okay and say you've you've really kind of spent your time nothing's getting by what what do you recommend at that point?
1: So, you know, in, in those situations, I think it depends on your comfort level. I mean, if, you know, there's certainly no one would fault you for, um, you know, if, again, depending on the scenario, having the patient uh, have, have an aphrostomy tube placed. The other, and, and, you know, and dealing dealing with this at a, at a later date, the the other option, um, you know, that, that I will do is I'll um, basically put back in that double floppy wire. I'll coil it under the stone. I'll, I'll reintroduce my eight ten dilator and coil a second wire under the stone, and then I'll advance an axis sheath up distal to the stone. You obviously don't have a wire past the stone. And in those situations, you know, it it could be um, a little bit hair-raising if the stone is really impacted because you you just don't want to, you know, kind of lose your lumen. But, um, you know, lasering uh, the stone to sort of get a window, you know, where you can get a sense for where the remainder of the ureter goes proximally. And then as soon as you see, you know, any sort of light at the end of the tunnel, getting a wire up past the stone and then at that point you have a wire through the access sheath so you're not going to be able to introduce your readers go back through the access sheath so then take out the access sheath get a second wire back in and then put your access sheath back up to continue treating the stone
0: Right, and and what about uh, semi rigid ureteroscopes, just trying to get in and you know create some of a channel? Do you recommend that at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's you know certainly if it's a a distal stone, you know, in in a woman, you could get a semi rigid ureteroscope fairly far up. You know, I think. Sometimes those scopes give you a little bit more, again, um, you know, rigidity. There's obviously less degrees of freedom. And so kind of gets you to where the stone is a little bit easier. So, you know, I, I think that uh, that's certainly an option. I think, you know, at least getting a wire coiled under the stone kind of helps straighten the ureter, whether you, you do semi-rigid or flexible ureteroscopy.
0: And what if you can't get your scope in, whether that's a, uh, you know, you've done your 810 dilator, um, whether it's a semi-rigid or a flexible, you know, kind of some options for navigating the UO or when you kind of say, all right, let's, let's get a stint in and, you know, come back and fight this battle another day.
1: Yeah, you know, I think tight ureters are are certainly a challenge. Um, for my in in my hands or my opinion, you know, if if the ureter appears to be tight, pretty much distal to the pelvic inlet, you know, um, uh, like iliac vessels and distal, and I'm sure that the stone is not in that location in the ureter, you know, the stone is more proximal. I'll balloon dilate, um, the ureter. So I mean, at this point, if I've tried the 810 dilator, you know, and it's it's pretty tight, I've shot a red grade, and I have an idea sort of, you know, where this where this narrowing is, and I'm confident that the stone again is not in that area, then um, then balloon dilation in the in the distal ureter I'm comfortable with. I mean as the ureter, you know, tunnels through sort of the intramural part of the ureter, you know, it's it's three layers. So I think it tolerates balloon dilation better with a, a lower chance of any kind of issues with stricture. And there have been series published on balloon dilation throughout the entire ureter with success. And and there are some folks who feel comfortable with that. You know I, I don't like to balloon dilate the proximal ureter just because my fear at that point, it's it's two layers, it's thinner. And, you know, I, I just worry about a, a higher likelihood of stricture in, in those locations.
0: Okay. And um, is that a, a four-centimeter balloon? Um, what French and what pressure do you typically go with when you're dilating?
1: So I usually do a 15 French four centimeter balloon. And um, I usually uh, will will go to 14 atmospheres and I go slowly. You know, I start at two and then wait a couple seconds, go to four. You know, I don't just like slam it up to to 14 atmospheres uh, immediately. And then, you know, sometimes you see a waste, sometimes you don't. Certainly, you know, if you do see a waste, you know, you can go up to those balloons are rated to 20. So you, you could go up a little bit higher if you need to, to, to get that waste to open. But uh, usually at 14, atmospheres I've I've had pretty good success with with opening those areas in the ureter.
0: When is it that you stent and get out and and come back?
1: Yeah, so you know, it's tricky. I mean, my practice I, I prefer to use an access sheath and you know, I I like to actually fragment and extract. So, you know, without an access sheath that's that's obviously a challenge. So for me, if I if I can't get our smallest diameter access sheath up a nine and a half, eleven and a half uh French, then I, I sort of try to decide in my mind, you know, what, what I think would be best. So one option is to just put the ureter scope up without an access sheath and dust the stone. Um you you know, if I feel like the stone is small enough, if the you know situation with the patient, um, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with with dusting as opposing to fragment extraction, um, then I'll I'll do that. You know, I, I tend to feel like dilating them with a stent for a week and bringing them back and you know being able to extract the fragments like i typically do is often the better approach i'm just sort of happier with that so you know if if i have difficulty getting that nine and a half eleven and a half sheath safely in you know then i'll typically stent and bring them back
0: and what are your um your typical dusting settings jody
1: so you know it depends on the laser that is available um but uh you know as as a kind of a general rule if you're dusting you essentially want a very low energy because you just want to be like chipping off little pieces and a very high rate so you know if i have a 100 watt laser i'll do 0.2 joules and 50 hertz Uh, sometimes you know doing a 0.4 joule and 50 hertz will get you to move through it a little bit faster the issue is you end up with a little bit larger you know chunks of quote unquote dust
0: and what about if you're fragmenting what's your your kind of workhorse laser settings.
1: Um, so again, depending on the on the laser that I have, but typically, you know, point eight and eight is sort of my starting point, and then depending on the hardness of the stone, I'll I'll sometimes modify things from there. Sometimes, you know, if it's a real dense hard stone, I'll go up to one and ten. If I have a hundred watt laser, you know, sometimes doing a, a 0. 0.6 and twenty, or even a point four and fifty, depending on the properties of the stone. Sometimes we'll generate, um, you know, more fragments than dust, and it kind of moves through it a little bit quicker than the point eight and eight.
0: Okay, and so you mentioned for your second wire you typically use an 810 dilator. Any strong opinions on dual dual lumen introducers versus serial dilators?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the issue I have with dual lumens is just sometimes if the ureter is a little bit tighter, you know, you're you have a very short distance of of uh, tapering, you know, where where you're um, kind of jumping to the ten French pretty quickly, and so oftentimes it just it won't go in as easily. So the the advantage I see with the eight ten is that you know you, you really get the the eight French dilation and then the ten, so it's just sort of a little. More gentle sequential dilation, which I like.
0: Makes sense. So, um, you know, access sheets, you mentioned them several times that those are kind of your preferred way to go. Um, what are your kind of workhorses in terms of inner outer diameter? Any ones that you find to be particularly effective uh, in your hands?
1: Yeah. You know, just within the last, I don't know, I'd say maybe three years. I've sort of changed my my go-to sheath size. So, you know, prior to that, if I could get it to go, I would do a 12 slash 14 French. You know, I, I transitioned to a 10, 12 French more recently. I mean, if a stone is over a centimeter, then, you know, I'll try for the 12, 14 because obviously the larger diameter sheath I can get in, the larger fragments I can extract and the more efficiently I can do that. But I've been really impressed with the ability to extract fragments through the 12 French sheath. I mean, you know, it's two French smaller, but it really it doesn't limit really my, my, my ability to extract um, as much as I, I expected. And I, and I do find that, you know, the, the appearance of the ureter on the way out is, is a lot uh, more favorable. You know, sometimes you get that real tight kind of pale appearance with larger larger ureteral axis sheets and that the 10-12, the you know, the, the ureter just sort of looks less stretched.
0: And is there any impact on the type of scopes you can get up?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the newer generation digital ureteroscopes and the disposable ureteroscopes will fit through a ten twelve access sheath. Older generation digital ureteroscopes will not. So, you know, for example, Olympus has a V and a V2. The V is the older generation. That won't fit through a ten twelve. So, you know, it, certainly your availability of, of scopes is something to consider with your access sheath size.
0: And for you, is it always... Digital preferred bigger is better.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, no, not necessarily. Um, the one advantage I find with the fiber optic scope is actually a little bit more flexion. Um, so, you know, sometimes a stone in a very dependent lower pole calyx, I I find an advantage to to the fiber optic scope. Obviously, you're trading off some clarity of image to to you know a few more degrees of, of flexion, which sometimes those those few degrees can make all the difference in the case. The other thing that that I find and, you know, sometimes I'll choose one scope over another is where the laser or the basket comes out you know if you're looking at the screen and you think of it like a clock face some companies the laser comes out nine o'clock some companies it comes out three o'clock and you know we're fortunate here to have you know several different options to choose from so sometimes you know going up and determining you know what approach will allow me to get to the stone in terms of where that equipment comes out is the decision point for me on which scope to use
0: got it yeah I I certainly would say that you know some Sometimes when we're taking a look up for upper tract tumors. You know, I think that the, the P6 is a pretty decent option if you're not planning on using a um, access sheath in, in my hands and in that clinical scenario.
1: Yes, I've been very impressed. I mean, even though it's a fiber optic scope, the, the visibility with, with that particular scope is excellent. And it's, you know, it's very atraumatic. It's tiny um, and uh, allows you to get good flow. It's, it's, a, it's you know, it's, it's a great scope.
0: And speaking of flow, handheld pressure irrigator versus pressure bags?
1: Great question. I think um, the irrigation in a case could really make or break you. And, um, you know, I I actually think that the most important job in in a ureteroscopy is the person who, if, if you are doing handheld irrigation, is the person holding that irrigator. I mean, they could probably cause close to as much damage as, as anybody can during that procedure so you know I think if you are going to do handheld irrigation it has great advantages you know allows you to sort of modify um, you know you, you can prevent blowing around pieces if you're grabbing things you can use a little bit more irrigation to you know see things or get through areas but you really have to I think be careful who's who's holding that irrigator and and are they understanding sort of the the power that they have so you know during most cases if I'm if I'm operating with a fellow or resident I actually prefer to be holding the Irrigation, because if somebody irrigates too hard, and say an infundibulum, uh, a calyx with a very narrow infundibulum, without good outflow, you, know, you can you can cause a significant amount of bleeding, and and then difficulty actually, you know, with visibility for the remainder of the case. And you know, we don't obviously routinely image people after ureteroscopy with CTs, but you know, handheld irrigation that's too powerful without good outflow can actually cause pretty significant like um, subcapsular hematomas and things like that. So you know, I think pressurized irrigation is probably obviously a little bit less modifications that you're able to make to it but in some ways could potentially be a bit safer than handheld irrigation if you don't have uh, the right person doing it
0: okay good i think some good things to consider there so you know we kind of talked again about a typical you've got two wires up you've got an access sheath up and um we've lasered away basketing fragments what what are your kind of go-to baskets and, and pros and cons of some of the various ones that exist?
1: Yeah, I mean, my favorite tool, I would say, disposable tool for your, for ureteroscopy is a, a basket or grasper made by Cook called the N-Gage. Um, you know, Boston Scientific has a similar one called Dakota, and it is almost like a three-dimensional triangle. It's kind of like a fish mouth where the front of it is open. I think for ureteroscopy, you know, it offers two advantages. One, you know, you're typically grabbing fragments that are in front of you. So having the the rasper or the basket open in the front really helps you to, you know, you know advance the basket out grab something and retract you're not having to catch the the fragments on the side of a of a basket the other nice thing i think with those designs is it allows you to disengage the, the basket easier than you know with a um like a zero tip basket or an end circle um, basket that tends to be more oval shaped so you know, if you pull out a fragment that's too large and you're sort of stuck in the ureter, i think it's easier to disengage those those triangular baskets like an engage
0: yeah, I I know that's something we use fairly extensively in training, and um, I, I think my ability to estimate a stone size is is pretty terrible. Anytime I use the one centimeter basket or so forth, I was a little over ambitious. So I feel like the end gauge does does kind of keep you honest. So you mentioned that you you prefer basket retrieval versus dusting. I imagine there are scenarios that we come across where, where dusting may be you know preferred. Maybe a, a further word about that, Jody.
1: Yes. Um, I would say this is a great debate in endo urology and any meeting you go to, this is always a plenary topic. So it is something that is certainly, you know, one approach has not been proven to be superior to the other. And, and, you know, to be honest, I think the right answer is a combination of using both approaches in, in your practice. And sometimes a combination of both approaches in a single case, you know, certainly if I have a, a larger stone that I'm trying to treat ureteroscopically, uh, you know, a centimeter and a half, for example, then I mean, it's pretty ridiculous to try to purely fragment that stone and extract it. I mean, you you will be there a long time. And actually, you know, we've we've looked at success rates of extraction for stones over a centimeter. And despite the most meticulous attempts, you know, it's about 30, 35 percent that you aren't, you know, getting a patient completely stone free with, with pure fragment extraction with these larger stones. So I tend to do more of a combination dusting, fragmenting. Approach for those for those larger stones again like centimeter centimeter and a half trying to sort of dust it down and then it, it extract fragments. I think the biggest issue I have with the concept of dusting, and I think most many people also feel this way, is that, you know, our laser technology hasn't really gotten us to a point where we really generate true dust. I mean, I think we just generate small fragments. And so the concern is, are those small fragments going to act as a nidus to, you know, cause a recurrence of, of, of a stone, you know, in, in, a, in a shorter amount of time. So that's something that has never been proven and something that, you know, multiple is a, a multi-centered group called the Edge Consortium that's, you know, sort of looking at that. There's been some short-term studies that have been published looking at the differences between dusting and fragmenting, and I think that these groups are, are you know, looking to follow these patients longer term, um, and I think that data will be really interesting. And then the advantages of dusting obviously have, uh, you know, been shown to be potentially shorter OR times, less cost because you're not opening as many disposable items. But you know, the the issue is you're you're, you're potentially leaving that patient, you know, with some some higher likelihood of of, of stones or fragments or dust left that maybe, you know, won't pass out of the collecting system like we expect it will. The other issue with dusting, too, is that, you know, sometimes if you have a larger stone and you generate so much dust, it's hard to see the bigger pieces that may be there within the dust. Um, fragmenting, you know, does have a higher stone free rate, but it's not perfect. And, and the other issue with fragmenting is that, you know, it does have a higher cost. You're opening, you know, more items um, and, and you're usually in the operating room longer to, to perform that technique.
0: So you mentioned disposables and cost, Um, disposable ureteroscopes coming through the pipeline, what do you think? Do you use those in your in your practice? Is this going to be something that's going to be prime time in, in the next decade or so?
1: You know, I think it's certainly something that is becoming more and more, you know, available. And I think depending on your practice situation could potentially make a lot of sense. You know, they've looked at cost analyses of, you know, disposables versus the, uh, you know, reusables and maintenance costs and repair costs and things like that. I mean, I think there's some sweet spot in terms of volume where probably disposable make more sense. I have used disposable ureteroscopes. Um, I've been incredibly impressed with the digital uh, quality image that that you get. Um, It's amazing considering that you throw the item away. So I don't use it routinely in my practice, but I think there are are you know certain scenarios where you can argue if you have the availability to use it, it may be better lower pole stones where you're concerned. Potentially, you're going to really max out your your reusable scope and could potentially damage or break it. You know, better to, to use a, a disposable scope in those situations. Uh, a patient with uh, you know numerous ESBL or multi drug resistant urinary organisms. You know, maybe those people are better off with a disposable scope um, rather than a reusable scope. Uh, that you know, there's been some studies. To show our sterilization isn't always, you know, what we expect it to be. So those are probably the two scenarios where I think disposable scopes have their best benefit. But I certainly think, you know, as your go-to scope, it's also a very feasible good option. Particularly if if the volume of your ureteroscopy that you do sort of fits in the in the cost scheme.
0: So for some of these lower pole stones, tough to access. um, What are some of the things that you'll do to to make it a little bit of an easier affair?
1: I think looking at the stone and the size of the infundibulum are key. You know, if if you think you can get that stone out of the lower pole um, through the infundibulum without getting stuck, I, I try to do that. I think, you know, whether you're going to dust or fragment, it's hard to get stuff out of the lower pole, and it's hard for a patient to pass anything out of the lower pole um, just because of the the dependence of that area. So the, the one concern with that, though, is you really, you know, if, if a stone at all looks like it'll be too large to get out of there, you, you don't want to get a basket stuck on the stone in the lower pole. That's a real tough spot to be in. So, you know, I, I had mentioned the end gauge as a go-to um, fragment extractor. If I am going to displace a stone from the lower pole to the upper pole or the renal pelvis, in those situations, I actually tend to use like a more oval-shaped basket, like an end circle. I think it's easier to sort of just catch those stones sort of from the side and, and bring them up. But I, I you know, if, if possible, I try to displace the entire stone If it looks like it's too large to bring out, then I'll uh, fragment it as minimally as possible in the lower pole and then bring up the fragments to the upper pole and then further either dust or fragment in, in that more favorable location.
0: Okay. And when you're going back and forth between basketing and lasers, do you use a laser and a basket in the same port or are you typically switching those instruments in and out?
1: I do use them in the same port. That's another thing I started to do a couple of years ago. And I think it's really helped, you know, decrease the, the amount of time. So, you know, none of the lasers that I'm aware of on the market come in any sort of you know reel that's 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 able to contain the laser well once it's out of the scope and so you know you spend so much time pulling the laser out wrapping it up under a towel or a mosquito or something and you know just that, all that back and forth between laser and basket I think it's some of what increases the operative timeless fragmentation so I've found that a Euroseal device or a sure seal device can accommodate a 270 micron laser fiber and a a, a grasper or a a basket, the 1.8 French Uh, graspers or baskets, and the 270 lasers tend to fit in there together better than like a 2.4 French. Um, those can be a little bit more drag when you're trying to move basket and the laser back and forth, and and it could also decrease your your irrigation flow. But uh, but the combination of a 1.8 French, um, like an N gauge and a 270 laser, I've found excellent flow and you know really nice maneuverability. So I'll pull the basket back into the scope, I'll laser, and then once I'm happy with the fragments. Pull the laser back into the scope, make sure you're no longer you know on on ready, you're no longer pressing the pedal, and then advance the basket out and extract sometimes you extract something too large and you can pass the laser out and whittle it down a little bit and get it out without without having to disengage the basket so I think it really is a is a huge time saver as long as you you have sizing that that makes sense for for maneuverability
0: okay and and you'd mention you know the lasers maybe aren't quite there to be true dusting lasers. You know, you've hear at meetings and so forth that there's some pretty exciting things coming through. Moses laders, lasers, thulmium lasers. Have you used any of those? Do you have any experience on, on that front?
1: Great question. Yes, yes. So, you know, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I think laser technology really hadn't changed a whole lot. And then within the last couple of years, there's been kind of some tremendous um, changes and improvements. So, you know, high power homium laser, like 120 watt lasers, and then with the addition of these um, kind of pulse modulation and pulse length um, variations that could be delivered, speaking specifically to Moses, I mean, not only can you alter the the pulse length, but But uh, MOSES is a a specific technology Luminous has that it's kind of you're you're also modulating the pulse delivery. So um, you're essentially trying to kind of Modulate that that energy so that you get a combination of stone stabilization and improved delivery of energy. Other companies, you know, have similar different terms that they've coined, but for this this pulse modulation, you know, homium laser technology kind of has a a ceiling in terms of where you can go with energy generation. Some of it has to do with the fact that the cooling system that has to be in place, you know, for that laser to function. So, sort of the next generation that's uh, that's come along in the last year or two is fiber laser, and and you know that laser kind of works in an entirely different way, but it allows for much higher energy generation, and the cooling system within it is is very different, um, and and requires much less space. So you know, there's, I think, a lot of excitement about what's fiber laser may be able to offer, particularly for dusting, and you know I think the the idea is that you know the ability uh, to really alter your power delivery, both the amount and sort of the the way it's delivered, may help us to actually truly generate dust from a stone. So you know there's a lot of work being done now because obviously there's going to be some upper limit to this energy generation, and you know the concerns of maybe a downside to that energy generation in the collecting system in terms of potential damage to the urethelium with heat generation and things like that. So I think there's a lot more to come. And I, I think it's an ex- exciting time for for laser technology for stones.
0: Got it. All right. So let's say, you know, we've, we've done our combination of dusting, fragmenting, extraction. We've taken a nice tour of the kidney. We feel that things are pretty much cleared out. Just, just walk us through maybe, you know, how you remove your access sheets and potentially what you would do if you identified like a little perf linear tear on your way out.
1: Yes, great question. Um, So certainly, you know, always as you're exiting the kidney, withdrawing the access sheath under vision and examining the ureter is key. So, you know, Dr. Traxer published a paper that sort of graded ureteral injury. And um, there was actually a follow up to that paper published a few years ago, looking at what were the outcomes of these patients who had these different grades of ureteral injury? And they essentially found even at the highest grade of ureteral injury, not a a complete avulsion, but, um, you know, a tear of the ureter to fat, there was only a a 1% chance of an ultimate stricture um, later. So there's no question that, you know, There's obviously concern when you see a tear within the ureter, but, you know, recognizing that, obviously, absolutely stenting the patient in those situations. And and then, you know, there's no, nobody knows the exact length of time that that these stents should be in. But I'd say, you know, if it is a a tear of the urethelium where you're seeing fat, I'll typically leave a stent for at least four weeks to allow that area to heal.
0: Okay. And what about, you know, like a perf, maybe you, you get up, things look a little off. You shoot a retrograde and you've got some significant extrav. Is that a get out and come back another day or...
1: It's a good question. I mean, if if you know, there's a lot of air, there's a lot of reasons why you can have extravasation. So you know, sometimes it's merely the wire poking through the uh, you know the papilla um, that that can cause that. I mean, if you know, you see an area where there's a, a gross disruption of the um, you know of, of the urethelium, um, and then you're going to be attempting to laser fragment. You know, my worry in those situations is just particularly like say it's a ureteral stone and you have a perforation there that you're going have to drag fragments through. You know, you, you just don't want to get the fragments out into that area and you also don't want to worsen that. So, you know, in in those situations, if you haven't, especially if you haven't even started treating the stone yet, maybe you see a, an injury that occurred due to the axis sheath, you know, your, your better bet in those situations is to stent the patient and come back so that you don't run the issue of, you know, extravasated stone fragments and, and that actually can really I- increase your likelihood of a stricture development at that spot.
0: Okay. And do you ever kind of go in with the planned for serial ureteroscopies?
1: Great question as well. Typically, no. You know, I think in those situations, you know, I think if you, in my hands, I I do PCNL as well. So, you know, if I really have a patient with a larger stone burden, you know, there's few times, few instances where I wouldn't proceed with a PCNL as opposed to ureteroscopy. And
0: what about pre-stenting? Do you ever do planned pre-stents?
1: I don't typically, I will say, you know, as part of my informed consent for ureteroscopy, I tell all patients that, you know, there is a chance that the ureter will be tight and the safest thing to do in that situation is often to stent and come back. So, you know, I had mentioned earlier in the in the talk, you know, if I can't get that smaller access sheath up, in most cases, I'll bring I'll stent and bring patients back. I just think that the ultimate outcome for them is best. But I, I rarely bring a patient, you know, in just for a stent. I mean, I, I at least attempt to to do the ureteroscopy. But it's, it's certainly, you know, I should say, it's certainly not wrong. And, um, you know, I think that uh, if you have a larger stone burden and, and you want to get a bigger axis sheath up or, you know, for various reasons like that, and you want to avoid a PCNL stenting and bringing somebody back is certainly a reasonable option.
0: And kind of an uncomplicated ureteroscopy access sheath went up well. Does everybody get a stent in your practice?
1: Great question as well. So, you know, the AUA guidelines on the surgical management of stones has one statement in like 50 that has level grade A evidence, and it's that you do not have to stent patients after ureteroscopy. And I think most people, or maybe not most, many many urologists around the country do routinely stent people. So I do, you know, in part because I use an access sheath. I think, you know, people have shown with these smaller access sheaths, it's it's also you know the ureter looks okay on the way out. Some people will, will not leave a stent in those situations, but I I do leave a stent. I mean, you know, I have a few select patients who don't tolerate stents well. And, um, you know, in those folks, I don't. And what what I have found in patients that I don't stent, they tend to have more severe pain immediately after the ureteroscopy, but it tends to go away quicker. And I will say that the practice is very variable with this. So, you know, there are lots of folks around the country I know who don't stent people routinely, you know, and I think people do well. I just think it's a little bit different post-operative course in terms of sort of, you know, um, intensity and duration of discomfort after.
0: Danglers, no danglers?
1: I don't, Typically, leave a dangler on women. Um, you know, my, my thought is just that it's a a, a in them is usually pretty well tolerated, and dealing with a string for for a week to me would be more bothersome. I tend to kind of leave the uh, option or the decision up to men. Uh, you know, most younger guys I'll leave a dangler, and then you know, older gentlemen often prefer prefer not to have one. One thing with older older gentlemen, you know, if I have a patient who's older, then I'm worried maybe you'll have difficulties voiding after ureteroscopy. I tend to not leave a dangler there because it's just more difficult dealing with that if they have to have a Foley placed after surgery.
0: Makes sense. And typical duration for an uncomplicated ureteroscopy for the stent?
1: So usually 5 5 to 7 days I mean to be honest it really depends on my you know kind of when I operated versus the 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 next clinic that I can have the patient you know come to we and others have looked at you know sometimes a shorter duration with the stent can actually lead to more discomfort after it's removed so but I, I tend to to go around 5 to 7 days
0: you know I recall when I was a resident there was a pretty impressive post op cocktail for your u- endoscopy patients can you Can you tell us what you're giving patients today?
1: Yes, great question. We really do again try to extend this multimodal pain control approach that we do during the the um, operation uh, with anesthesia, you know, into the post op and, and the discharge meds for home. So, you know, we do prescribe pain medication. We've actually tried to lean more toward NSAIDs instead of narcotics. Again, sort of mounting evidence to show it actually works better and obviously has less side effects. Then we also give an uh, anticholinergic unless they're older or significant concerns about bladder emptying to just help with some of the lower urinary tract symptoms from a stent, Um, an alpha blocker to, again, help relax the ureter, and There's some evidence to show that that can make the stent more comfortable, some sort of, you know, urinary tract anesthetic like azo or peridium. And then if if we send them home with a narcotic, a stool softener as well.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head that managing patient expectations, trying to stick to a non-narcotic backbone and, and really... You know, prophylactically managing the full spectrum of potential side effects, you know, makes it a better patient experience and keeps folks out of the ER and and calling the clinic. Okay, so stents come out, post-op imaging, follow-up. Is everybody getting a metabolic evaluation?
1: So the, the AUA, has it's not truly really a guideline, it's like a clinical effectiveness protocol on imaging ureteral stones. I sort of follow that for my post-op imaging after ureteroscopy. The recommendation is an ultrasound and then a KUB if you've fragmented the stone. If you're able to remove the stone intact, the KUB isn't necessary. The reason behind that imaging is just that um, there is a, a, a risk of potential silent obstruction after ureteroscopy. So a patient you know, could develop a stricture that they don't have pain from, and you don't recognize that, and they can ultimately go on to lose that kidney. So, interestingly, a group has looked recently at the the actual utilization of imaging after ureteroscopy, and it's sadly pretty low. But the recommendation absolutely is, you know, about four to six weeks later, uh, I get an ultrasound and, and and a KUB. In terms of you know, twenty four hour urine metabolic management. I look at the patient and determine, you know, their their risk. If they're low risk, if they it's a single stone, uh, they have no positive family history, they have no comorbidities that would predispose to stone disease, then I don't, you know, automatically recommend that and sort of give the patient general dietary recommendations. Even if it's a first stone and that patient really wants a metabolic evaluation, then obviously I'll do it. Other, pretty much everybody else, uh, I'll do the metabolic evaluation. So, you know, uh, high-risk stone formers, either positive family history, uh, comorbidities that would predispose to stones or recurrent stones. And and I think it's important to note recurrent stones aren't just people who are presenting more than one time with a stone. It's somebody who presents the first time with multiple stones would still be considered recurrent.
0: Okay, good point. Good point. A clinical scenario out there that I think gets everybody's blood pressure up a little bit are uh, pregnant women coming in. So maybe let's let's just kind of briefly touch base on a you know non-infectious ureteral stone.
1: Yes, so you know, you, you know, typically you're you're sort of the uh, you know point at which you're getting involved. OB calls you and tells you, you know, there's a pregnant woman who's having flank pain. They probably have gotten an ultrasound at that point. May show hydro. So you know, uh, hydro of pregnancy is common on the right side, particularly as the pregnancy progresses and the uterus gets larger. So it's sort of one thing to consider. Um, you know, if the patient is far along in pregnancy, like in third trimester, and they could also have a small amount of hydro on the left side just as part of hydro pregnancy. You know, the the big trick is, is kind of, um, you know, imaging, obviously, and that's the big question with, with with pregnancy. So, you know, I think as much information as you can possibly get out of imaging that does not involve radiation is, is key. So, you know, the AUA guidelines will say kind of the progression of imaging, first line is ultrasound, sometimes utilizing other techniques of ultrasound like transvaginal images or transabdominal images can help. If you can't get the information you need in terms of a stone, you know, diagnosis, from ultrasound, you can try an MRI. MRIs obviously don't show stones, but they'll show a filling defect, um, particularly on the T2 weighted images, and they'll also can show you the level of obstruction. Um, the issue with MRIs is obviously cost and availability. Uh, so, you know, the AUA does condone usage of low dose protocol CTs, particularly after organogenesis complete. So, safest to do after fifteen to twenty weeks. And you know, while obviously it is radiation to the to the fetus. The idea is that if, you know, the the diagnostic accuracy is so much higher compared to MRI or ultrasound. So, you know, having the actual diagnosis, you know, will potentially prevent that patient from unnecessary procedures. So in that sense, the pros sort of outweigh the the cons. But obviously, you know, the gestational age is key. So, you know, there's it's hard to justify a CT scan before 15 weeks. You know, once you've diagnosed a stone, then I think not every stone in pregnancy has to be operated on by any means. I mean, obviously, trial of passage is the key if you can get a patient's uh, symptoms under control. If you can't get a patient's symptoms under control, then you obviously have to make a decision between draining that kidney versus intervening surgically. I think stone size, location, complexity of anatomy is important. You know, if it's a under a centimeter ureteral stone, um, you know something as of a reasonable size, and the patient's pain is not under control. You know, deciding between stenting or nephrostomy tube with usually frequent exchanges um, versus ureteroscopy. Uh, you know, I think it has to, do, to really depend on the comfort level of. You know, the, the urologist, the resources available at that hospital, you know, specifically ureteroscopy in pregnancy, best time to do it a second trimester. You know, first trimester is just a higher risk of miscarriage for various reasons. So you, intervening at that time is just considered riskier. Late third trimester, you have a higher chance of preterm labor. So, you know, second trimester, early third trimester is your best window. And again, I really think you want to choose wisely in terms of who you're going to tackle, uh, you know, stone volume, you're going to tackle ureteroscopically in pregnancy. And then certainly involving OB and having kind of a a multidisciplinary approach, OB, anesthesia, and urology is key. But there have been 20 plus case series published on the safety of ureteroscopy. Again, at the right institution with the right providers and, and, uh, you know, at the right gestational age and with the right stone, stone burden.
0: Jody, well, you know, I, I got to say my mind's blown, just a wealth of information in terms of diagnosis, common scenarios, uncommon scenarios, dangerous scenarios. I think you really walked us through the whole journey of ureteroscopy and certainly appreciate it and learned a lot. Any any other just kind of parting thoughts for, for trainees, for practicing folks, um, you know, that do ureteroscopy or anything that we might not have covered?
1: Great, great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, Ultimately, in your practice, a word to, I guess, the trainees, I mean, stones will be one of the most common things you see. And so, you know, gaining as much experience as you can during training, um, you know, with, with ureteroscopy and management of stone patients, I think really will benefit you, you know, in, in your practices, particularly as a general urologist, because it certainly has to be, you know, of, of my colleagues and friends who practice general urology, I mean, they, they all tell me stones is probably the, the number one thing that they, that they treat uh, in their practice. Practices, and um, you know, with regard to to the practicing urologists out there, I mean, I think it's an exciting time for endourology. I think there's, you know, as, as I touched on earlier, the the um, laser technology and also you know additional uh, other surgical technologies are, are are continuing to improve. And I, I think that you know our ability to to manage stones in a way that is least invasive and most effective for patients is just continuing to improve and improve.
0: Perfect, Jody, and uh, you know, if I could one thought that i have before we wrap up you know having done ureteroscopies and trained under the likes of yourself and peggy pearl ureteroscopy comes in a lot of shapes and flavors and i think really doing our absolute best to make sure all fragments are out that the dust really remembers resembles dust is critical you know a return trip to the ed a second operation these are going to be suboptimal outcomes so you know, thanks again for your uh, insight, for your opinions, and um, all the little tips and tricks, Jody's It's fantastic.
1: Aditya, thank you so much for the for the invitation. It was uh, truly an honor to to be able to participate. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Have a wonderful day.